everybody, and welcome back to Beware the Artist. I am Jeremy Jersa, and with us today we have Rebecca Ness. Um, Rebecca, if you want to go ahead and tell everybody who you are and what is it that you do. Hey, um, hello everyone. Thank you, Jeremy, for bringing me on. Um, like you said, my name is Rebecca Ness. I'm originally from right outside of Boston, Massachusetts. I was born there in 1992 um, in the city of witches. I was born in Salem. Um, I then went to Boston University where I graduated with a uh, BFA in 2015. And then I went to Yale University where I graduated with my MFA in painting um, in 2019. And now I live and work in New Haven and I am a painter. Nice, nice. So what made you, uh, what made you stay in New Haven after grad school? Um, a, a little bit of, of both work and love. Um, my partner uh, is in a residency program at the um, Yale New Haven Hospital here. So I met her while I was in graduate school. So it's partly for love, but also partly um, in the benefits of what New Haven brings to like an artist's work. So the studios are very, very large and very, very inexpensive. Um, and it really allows me to push my work um, in a way that maybe if I lived in New York at this early stage of my career, I may be a little bit more limited by, by means and and material conditions. Um, so there's that, but also New Haven really has this kind of like burgeoning arts community as well. Um, Titus Kafar's Next Haven program is here, which brings in a lot of amazing artists, some of, some of whom are my friends and many Yaleys kind of like stick around as well because of the benefits that I've, that I've mentioned. Um, so it's, it's a really great place for the beginning of your art career in my opinion. Are there many people from your graduating class that are still kind of in the area? Yeah, yeah, a, a great number. Um, my friend Dominic Chambers, he's uh, graduated the same year as me. Um, he makes beautiful paintings and he's around the corner from me in my in my studio building. Chiffon Thomas as well, um, Jose Chavez, a lot of people have really stuck around. Um, and I hope that that continues because I think it's a great little um, supportive network that we have if we really have an issue with one of our paintings um, or something more pre-COVID, but um, we could just pop in someone's studio and, and check it out. Yeah, it must be nice to, to have that kind of continued community and that continued yeah. just, just support, uh, you know, because we're, we're putting ourselves out there as artists and, you know, it, it falls flat, flat so many times that uh, it, it's nice to have that support system. Um, it really is, yeah. So, so when you're in the studio and you are about to start a painting, what's happening? What, what, mm -hmm. what do you do to actually enter into a painting? I do a lot of like preparatory thinking before I go um, and like attack a canvas. To me, the idea, and I feel like for, for many painters, the idea of just a blank canvas is very nerve wracking and very scary. Um, I don't know if you feel similarly with your work, but um, so I like to be as prepared. It's like showing up to a job interview almost. I like to be as prepared as I can um, before I, I like tackle the task. Um, so I work a lot from photography. Um, I like go around in the world and, and when I see something, I, I kind of just stand in front of it and take a million photos from different angles. And so I do this kind of photo collage thing in my head where I, if, I, if I'm stuck for an idea, I can just look at in my phone basically and, and see what has sparked my interest in the past month and, and kind of go, go from there. 
Um, so I do preparatory drawings kind of based on these uh, these photo collages that I'm that I'm starting to figure out. And then these drawings are are less like um, finished pieces per se and more like utilitarian. Um, so it's it's usually like the backbones of a piece. Mm. And then once I have the backbones, that's when like the real fun starts. Like I don't like to have too much fun in, in the preparatory because I, that's what painting painting is all about. <laughs> um, so in a lot of your paintings, there's these really great compositions of kind of mm -hmm. clusters and, and there's a lot going on. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it leads me to, to think about what it actually kind of looks like in your studio. So what's what's happening in your studio? Is it messy? Is it super clean? Um, do you have podcasts playing? Are there music? What's what's that atmosphere like? Yeah, I'm I, I think I maybe my paintings also show this, but I have a lot going on in my head and I kind of have a horror vacui kind of thing. Like I don't like silence. I I don't like um I, I don't like wide open spaces, I guess. I, I really enjoy moments where every sort of space is, is taken up with some sort of information in both my head and the paintings. So my studio, I like to have clean in the morning, um, but as the painting, like I usually clean at night, um, but as the paintings progress and how my day progresses, the studio definitely gets really dirty and really cluttered. Like I just like throw gloves on the floor. I, I, I throw drawings and, and books all over the floor. And it kind of, in a way, mimics the painting that I'm making for the day in the, in the way of filling in, filling in, filling in with more information. I listen to a lot of podcasts because um, music I really like when I am like commuting or when I'm just kind of uh, you know, in more domestic spaces. Um, but, but podcasts, I, I really like to have kind of some information coming in. Um, so I can have information like come out of my hand as well. So it's continuous noise always. <laughs> so are you, are you catering these podcasts to what you want to actually have happen within the painting itself? I haven't gone that far, although that is a really good idea. Um, <laughs> I, I usually kind of go in, in the kind of infotainment kind of, uh, kind of realm. Um, I like a lot of spooky, spooky things. Um, and I think that they rarely, you know, show up in my paintings, the theme of the, the podcast mm. I'm listening to, but more just kind of like maybe in a way my, my paintings can be infotainment somehow. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I <Yeah>. like that. <laughs> Um, so what what themes are you trying to bring across in in the imagery that you're selecting for for these for these paintings? Yeah, I think that the those themes are are kind of progressing. and i I'm not I don't think I'm an artist who works in projects per se. Like I have friends, like my great friend Anna Benaroya, for example, when she um, like approaches a show, she kind of has one kind of project or theme in mind and that's how she, her practice works. But I think mine is a lot more slower in, in progression. Like for the past year of 2019 and, and part of 2020, like it, it was, they were very isolated um, personal paintings about my studio and in the beginning of my art career, like what it means to be a working artist, that that's what I viewed a lot of those paintings about. My um, last kind of studio painting that I made that was at Nina Meyer Gallery in Los Angeles was called I See You. 
And it was this large studio painting with all the works that I was making for the show, um, preparatory drawings, like some like of my secrets, if you know what I mean, like your little like uh, drawings of paintings that have yet to be made, like putting mm -hmm. it all out there. And, and I'm looking back at the viewer in, in my notebook and it's written that I, I see you because I do feel like the, the beginning of a working artist that there, there are a lot of eyes on you that, you know, can be stressful and, um, uh, in, in a privileged way, if that makes sense. And, um, so the, the works, you know, we're all about, being being a, a kind of a new artist in the studio with this new kind of life course and then with kind of the still isolated theme they they more transferred into what it was like to be a person during covid um since i was directly affected with with my girlfriend um working in the covid ward um i made a painting called holly coming home uh which in my in my uh um and my goal juxtaposed kind of like the real life, what was happening in COVID outside of myself, and then also how it directly affects myself. So in the foreground, there was like this, this kitchen table that all, had all these New York Times articles that all had to do with like COVID and, and, and like the civil unrest that was happening and, and everything that was part of it. And then when you, your, when your eye pans upwards, you see um, Holly coming in with her scrubs on and she has her process of like taking them off in like a sterile way and then me kind of like six feet the other other way waiting to kind of welcome her yeah. so it I still view that as a very isolated painting but but less so than just like me myself and I in my studio I'm really trying to veer away from like this I have the tendency to isolate myself and I'm trying to veer away from those tendencies in, in my paintings and really think about like um, what it means to be a person in the world today. Um, so yeah, I think that they they gradually um, progress from thing to thing based on what's happening in the world. Um, speaking of uh, just the, the COVID paintings in, in general, um, you have one piece that is the New York Times article with all the names of everyone that has passed mm -hmm. away. Um, what was that mm -hmm. experience like for you? Because that just, it, it's when I even saw the newspaper itself, that it was just so heavy. Um, and then to spend, yeah. spend that time kind of meditating through a painting. Um, what was that experience like? I mean, obviously it was, it was extremely sad and, mm -hmm. you know, I were obviously way over a hundred thousand deaths today and will be more tomorrow. Um, but I, I thought it was really, really important to like try to figure out as an artist, how do we give space to what is happening right now? Because in art history, we look back at the paintings that were made of specific, um, like really important moments. And, and we think about how the artists thought about how they would react to them. So that, that painting, I, I, when I saw the, the, the front page, I was like, this needs to be kind of solidified somehow. Um, Cause you know, newspapers, we oftentimes like recycle the next day or, you know, they're in date today, but they'll be out of date and thus useless in some way tomorrow. And I, I thought that it would be really important to like respect that that front page and and give some more time and space to the names that were on it because you know they're they're 
they come across as just names, but obviously they're people. And right, right. Um, I'm thinking of what it would be like for maybe a family member to see that painting one day and see that their, you know, their uncle, their brother, their their mother is 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 live is living beyond just the the front page of that one day, mm. not to be recycled later. Yeah, yeah. Um, so <laughs> so building off of that. Um, what do you believe the kind of role or responsibility of the artist is um, within today's society? Big question. Yeah, no, I think it's with, with big questions. I think I always start with myself um, mm -hmm. because I don't, I don't like to answer for anyone else because I only have my own brain and yeah. people do things way smarter and better than me <laughs> in the world. So I, I think that the, the artist's goal is to in in whatever experience that they have whoever they are like how they've been socialized how they've been brought up what they're interested in like display that their viewpoint for other people to empathize with sympathize empathize you know <laughs> i always mess those two up but um but for someone else to connect with and i think it's it's art and literature is the way that we get inside other people's heads and I think getting inside other people's heads is how we truly um, understand other people. And I think from understanding other people is a way that we grow as society. So that sounds kind of like idealistic, but like I really benefit from, you know, going to the museum and getting inside other, other painters' heads. And, and I feel like I can understand what their thoughts were and their intentions were with each brushstroke. And I think similarly, we all can benefit from that. I completely agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, your work appears to be very based in observation, um, but there's also quite an illustrative quality um, to mm -hmm. a, lot of the, a lot of the paintings. Um, is this a deliberate choice or is this just how you kind of filter uh, the imagery of the world? It's a bit of both. Um, like many people, I grew up really enjoying, you know, children's books and 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 comics and illustrations. Um, my favorite books were I Spy. I think I Spy really still, you know. I love I Spy books. <laughs> yeah, obviously those are photographs, but um, that's kind of where a bit of the kind of filling things in with information tendency comes from. Um, I don't you mean know, to interrupt you, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I, but just seeing your work and seeing that relation, it's it, yeah, it's starting to make more sense now. Um, I spy kind of, is so yeah. important to me. <laughs> but go no, on with I, what you were saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, I, I, I think that like a lot of my my work kind of really harkens back to those those types of like early things that pique our interest. Um, I had a studio visit with Josephine Halverson when I was at Yale and she was like, you need to be looking at Norman Rockwell more. Um, and so now Norman Rockwell has kind of been my, like, thank you for, to Josephine. Like I didn't give him enough thought in kind of the beginning of my um, like artistic language making. But now, like when I look at Norman, like I, I see a lot that I identify with with him. And like he also has that bit of not quite realistic, a little cartoony, 
like, but you know that his hand has been inserted in here somehow. And that's what's important to me. Like the, the situations that I paint, they're, they're based in reality, but they're completely like composed with my hand. And like, I have complete power in the composition. So they aren't completely realistic. And I think in these moments where we have like a cartoony pencil um, or, you know, maybe my face looks far better than it nor normally does or something, um, you know that, that the artist has, at, as some sort of God or deity has come in and like influenced what is happening. Um, I really enjoy like photorealism, but mm -hmm. it's, it's not something that I think um, like pertains to what I'm interested in. I was just uh, looking at a bunch of Dutch still life paintings of like the foods and the cheeses. And I was, I, I forget what art historian said this, but they were like, at first glance, they look really realistic, but then you realize that, you know, the angle of that cheese doesn't work or this flower looks quite cartoony or, you know, this, the, the plane would never rest like this. And that really resonated to me as well of like, you know, you take what exists and then you turn it around in, in some way um, with your specific mindset. I like that. I like that. I, uh, <laughs> it's funny because when, when we look at these Dutch master paintings, we, we always just assume that they are, they are what was being kind of shown. Yeah. We, they have this kind of veil of perceived reality and, and we, we accept that. Um, but to yeah. hear, to hear that kind of skewing of different things to um, ultimately make a better painting, um, it's not really something we consider all the time as a viewer. Yeah. Um, as yeah. an artist, we do, but as, as a viewer, it's just kind of a slight kind of disconnect. Yeah, um, and I, I feel like it was pretty radical what they did too. Like yeah. I, I, I think it was like a pretty radical, as, as, fun, as silly as it sounds, I think like switching a cheese to be you know a real a little higher in your perspective than it actually is like really take making the choice to to change reality and change gravity and and change how the world works i think is a pretty radical decision yeah 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 <laughs> um so this is a question i like to ask kind of anyone that's in a creative field um mm -hmm. at what point did you start calling yourself an artist? Um, I think the term artist, like I always uh, thought sounded like, ooh, I'm an artist. Like it sounded kind of like, I was okay when someone called me an artist, but I didn't want to be like, well, I am an artist because it sounded too important and I didn't give myself enough or, and I still don't really like, mm -hmm. but I'm, but I'm working on that is like, like kind of having more confidence in yourself and being like, no, I am important. Like what I say is important. And I think like with calling yourself an artist, you're accepting that you have some sort of like responsibility or that you are working hard on something important to say. Um, I think growing up, I used to say, you know, I really like to draw. I really like to paint. Um, I would never say like, I am an artist, but I'm working on doing that more now. I think that started when I was in undergrad, I started to do that more, um, but yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of had a, a similar similar yeah. experience. It, I don't think it was until I was in grad school that I actually accepted the term artist. Yeah. Uh, 
it does have this weird responsibility and, yeah. and weight to it that I never really uh, had the confidence, um, like like you said, to, to yeah. say, oh, yeah, I am this thing. Um, Is there a specific moment where it, where it changed for you? Did you have like a specific story or moment? Um, honestly, it was being in grad school and saying, this is what I'm doing for the rest of my yeah. life. And yeah, um, there's kind a of, part of that too. Yeah, owning that identity and, and taking responsibility for, for, for those actions that I'm kind of putting out um, into the world. Um, hmm. So that, that process between undergrad and grad school, it can be mm-hmm. completely transformative for a lot of people. Um, how yeah. would you say your practice changed during that, during that transition in time? Yeah, I, I think it changed both in kind of like my perspective and, and my goals that I wanted in life and also uh, like my my material condition and what art I could make. Um, so I went from Boston University, which, you know, kind of has this like Philip Guston taught there and it has this kind of, which is why I went there. It has this realm of like, like, hardcore like oil painting which I love like a lot of people made large work like I made really really large work I was just oil painting um and that was kind of like my identity and then when I graduated I had to move back with my parents and I didn't want to use oil paint because we had cats and you know I had no room I was in like my childhood or, or then their new house bedroom. So I was in this weird small bedroom and I was like, what do I do? Like, I don't know what to do. Uh, so I remember that um, my professor and, and mentor who I really loved, his name is Richard Ryan. Um, he told me like when I was a junior in, in undergrad to pick up some gouaches, um, acrylic gouaches, specifically the waterproof mm-hmm. kind that dry really quickly. Um, because he said that they would really, like my color was really bad in, in undergrad. Like I was good at, I think like drawing and, and, and painting, but like my color was terrible. Um, and so he thought that the gouache would really help with color. So I was like, okay, well, I have, I have no way to make, the, make paintings at this moment. I guess I'll try gouache. And I went from, you know, making these like six by six foot paintings in undergrad to like these six by six inch small gouache paintings um, on my dad's drafting table at home or in my bedroom. And that's when I think things really changed because I was forced to um, consider how bad I was at color <laughs> and try to relearn it and, and, and you know, not rely so much on line, but start to rely on color, with I, which I think really, really changed how, like gouache changed um, and turned me into the artist I am today. Um, so I, you know, kind of fell back in love with painting a little bit when I when I went back to the basics, and I decided that I wanted to go to grad school. And I applied to Yale with all these like five by five inch works. Like I brought all of my work to Yale <laughs> in like a Manila <laughs> folder. <laughs> and um, you know, of course, when I got to Yale, I started painting big again. But I think I needed to go back to like sweating the small stuff um, mm-hmm. in order to to get to where I am now with 85 by 120 inch paintings. Like those never would have happened if I didn't make those small works. And I think it also um, really relates a lot to kind of like 
what I said, like my horror vacui tendencies or like that I love like a lots of little small things because I still still love making small paintings. So I view like in these really large works where there's like all these little objects happening, each one of those is a small painting in my mind, which harkens back mm -hmm. to that like middle point of making small paintings, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So mm -hmm. in the in that same kind of vein of thinking, how important is scale to you? And how do you make that judgment of yeah. um, this small piece is finished or in relationship to, um, is it communicating with this larger wall-sized almost mural piece? Um, how, yeah. how are you making those choices? I think a lot of it has to be, has, has to do with um, uh, A, composition and B, like how a work relates to your body. Like I really respond, I think everyone responds to works in different ways, obviously, but I really respond to works where I feel small mm -hmm. and that I feel like I am like an investigator. Like I've, I have always thought that like I could be this like, um, I don't know, like woman going through the art jungle, trying to like discover new things. And I really find that when I am confronted with, um, you know, like a work that I need to like crane my neck to or like kneel kneel to see um that's when i feel like a a big you know um investigator in that way um so i kind of want to give that to other people as well like i i really love when someone like hasn't seen like one of my large paintings and you know maybe only take some photos of it and then they come into the studio and they're like oh this is so big like and they, you know, ask for a chair to like see what's on like the top level or they like yeah. kneel down, they like really activate their body. And that's when I feel that, you know, you and the painting are, are, are collaborating more in, in the viewing process. Um, and they're also just really fun to paint, you know, painting on scaffolding is really fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Your work at times appears to monumentalize these everyday activities or these everyday moments. Um, can you talk about that kind of transition and alchemy between taking this mundane everyday activity and then blowing it up to this almost monumental scale? Yeah, I, I, I think about genre painting a lot and I think genre painting is one of the most important like uh, art historical like themes in in, in the world of painting because it shows what actual life is like in a moment in time. And like, I think about a lot how, you know, how radical my paintings, my, you know, gay paintings that I make would, would have been if I showed them, you know, a hundred years or 300 years ago. Mm. And you have to give like credit to the people who made genre paintings before you, like, like I think of Hugh Steers who made these like genre paintings of, you know, just men at home, um, but they were gay men at home. And, mm -hmm. and like, because of the paintings he made, I'm able to make my paintings. Every artist has their influences. Um, mm -hmm. and, and you've brought a couple of them up throughout this interview, yeah. but who would you say are some um, really just kind of pivotal artists that you looked at at any point in your career so far and just kind of absorbed them into your mm -hmm. practice? I'll start with the beginning and work till now. Um, okay. Cause I think that could be helpful. <laughs> I'd say in the beginning, you know, where's Waldo, um, the book dinosaurs um, with all those amazing dinosaur illustrations. Um, I spy for sure. Um, then I would go to Lucian Freud in my kind of, you know 
learning how to oil paint from from life kind of phase. Um, and then I would go towards when I really um, like learned that painting could be about more than just looking at something and recreating it, um, which is in undergrad, when my teacher Dana Clancy said, you need to laugh more when you're painting. And she gave me like a couple postcards with Nicole Eisenman paintings on them. And so once I discovered Nicole Eisenman and, and Dana Schutz, I was like, oh, like art doesn't have to be so like, obviously their paintings are very serious and, and, and important, but like art doesn't have to be so like furrowed brow serious. Mm. Like you can have like someone looking down at their penis with a I'm with stupid shirt on. Like that is also equally important. Um, so those, those, those two women really kind of started me on, on, on this like um, phase, this new figurative painting phase in my life. And so now I, I look a lot at, you know, those two, I, I look at um, like Hugh Steers, who I mentioned earlier, I, I really enjoy. Um, I look at, I, I go back to Goya a lot um, in terms of historical paintings. He's, you know, one of the best. Um, and then I also look way, way back to kind of like Bruegel and Bosch as well, when we talk about like the really packing in information um, aspect of paintings. So if there's one piece of art that you have mm -hmm. to see before, see in person, before, before you die at the end of your kind of lifespan, what's mm -hmm. that, what's that one piece that you, you have to make a pilgrimage to actually see? Yeah, I mean, you know, speaking of, of Bosch, it has to be Garden of Earthly Delights. Like it just has to be. I, I think it's kind of like um, it's 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 kind of everything that I'm interested in, um, secretly and not not secretly. Um, I think it's in Madrid. I looked it up. Um, I need to definitely go see it. Amazing, amazing. You're not the first <laughs> artist to kind of bring. I'm sure, that up. I'm oh, very yeah. sure. <laughs> Um, and we, we kind of hit on this topic before a, a little earlier, um, but the artist's life by nature is, is pretty isolated. Mm -hmm. um, and then during times of COVID, everyone's even more isolated. Um, so have you been kind of doing anything to really break up that isolation and have conversations with other artists? What's, what's kind of happening for you in terms of working in art in the time of COVID? Yeah, I think just like, keeping up with friends is important both personally and, you know, artistically. Um, I, you know, just text, text photos of paintings. Like some of my text um, chains are just like photos of paintings. And then mm -hmm. we call each other afterwards and, and talk about them. So I think um, not staying isolated, just pre-COVID and post-COVID is just like asking people what they think about your paintings. Like that's, that's like the advice I would give like right now in, in COVID is like, if you're comfortable with sharing photos of your paintings, text them to people and, and see what they say. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so I think just, just really making the effort, like, again, like I said, I'm kind of an introver introverted person by nature. So sometimes it can be like challenging for me to reach out um, whether in COVID or not, but I've really kind of set myself up with the task of like, no, you're gonna, like continue to get your paintings out there to people who 
whose opinion you really trust and and don't let it just simmer in your studio like it has mm -hmm. to live beyond you um, and other eyes have to see it somehow in the actual kind of working within the studio do you have multiple canvases going at one time do you have a series of drawings what's what's that process like mm -hmm. for you yeah the the preparatory stuff i always do at home um for some reason i've just kind of always worked that way i like to either in the morning or when i come home at night like work on the preparatory things because i really like to keep you know i go to the studio at like 8 a.m and then i leave at like like 6 30 ish um, Monday through Friday. Um, I try to not go in on weekends that much, but I like to keep that moment of time like really like productive. Like I really like to see that I have like made progress on something. Even if I like painted on something and wiped it all out, like that's mm -hmm. still progress somehow. If I have more than two, it's just too much. Um, if I have a big, uh, like I just had a, a deadline. And so I'd working, I was working just on that painting for like two weeks. Um, and that's kind of like the the quickest I think I can make a painting. Mm -hmm. It's about two weeks just working on that thing. Usually paintings take about like a month to work on because I'm usually working on on two at once. I get really um, I get quite frustrated easily. And if I just have one painting that I'm frustrated at, like it's kind of hard to emotionally manage. So I like to go to something else. And then when I get frustrated at that, I usually like the other painting more. So it's kind of a, a, a thruple that I have with my paintings. <laughs> um, how, how far in advance are you um, kind of setting goals for yourself? Um, mm -hmm. are, you, are, you, are you working kind of piece to piece or are, do you think long-term in terms of projects that you're kind of building? Yeah, I mean, I I really aspire to make the largest paintings that I can. Um, I really want to make uh, a painting that's the size of Guernica. I don't know where I would put it, um, but I also really want to have a painting that like lives on some far reach of the world. Like it would be really. I I had this dream like a couple weeks ago that I somehow like had a small um like birdhouse or shack or something like in both poles and like I had a painting in either one <laughs> and or or I also was talking to someone else um recently where it was it would be really funny if you were like the first artist to to have your like painting go in space like I know that art like artworks have gone in space and, and then mm -hmm. come back down but I think it would be really funny to just send one out and like maybe sometime be discovered by aliens or something and maybe they aliens have their own form of art and it'd be really interesting to see how they like view a painting. Mm -hmm. um, so I have those aspirations. I don't know if they'll actually happen, but I think my real aspiration is to make like a, a Guernica sized painting or something that really overtakes a room. I was really inspired by Cecily Brown's work recently. Um, at that um, palace in in England, and I would love to do something like that that just overtakes a space. I, I think it's funny um, that that you bring up a, a painting living in space because I <laughs> I definitely can see some type of self portrait of yours where you're in this just kind of space <laughs> out, out, astronaut get up um, I love just that. kind of floating. 
around <laughs> just moving back I would forth. love that I think it would be I think I wouldn't paint myself I think that would be very I like that idea I think but like I wouldn't paint myself because I feel like that would be like too like thinking of like I don't know too like self-centered or something uh -huh, but yeah. I but I don't know what I would paint though like what would be like the painting to represent the world to be discovered by aliens <laughs> like what do you do <laughs> that that's a universal language right there that you're trying it's to quite <laughs> it's quite a commission yeah <laughs> um so that being a kind of a dream goal um mm -hmm. are you setting kind of weekly deadlines are you setting monthly deadlines in terms of uh short-term kind of goals yeah so uh what helps is is excuse me, when I have shows to work for. Um, and so I have deadlines um, that I set for myself in, in terms of that. Um, so I have a show coming up at Carl Costiel Gallery in June. Um, so I have, you know, these deadlines where I need, need like two paintings by February, four paintings by, you know, April and, and, and work in, in that way. But when I don't have like a specific show deadline, I think I just try to work as hard as I can to build up inventory in my studio for when something mm -hmm. comes along. And that's what I was doing, you know, um, right right before I, I, I left Yale is really making sure as I like went into my new professional life that I had the paintings that really spoke well about me that, you know, collectors or, or uh, dealers could come in and and really get the best first impression. Mm. I think it's very important to have like art in your studio that you keep for yourself, um, which I'm still working on um, so that you always have something for somebody to look at. So I think that's like a short term goal for an artist. Um, if they don't have a show coming up is just making sure that they have the best things on their wall for when something does mm. come along for a good opportunity. I think uh, I think it was George O'Keefe that that said um whenever you're working as an artist even though you may not have a show coming up um you should have enough paintings in the studio for three solo shows um wow. which seems very overwhelming but uh, yeah. <laughs> definitely kind of sets a standard <laughs> no it does and i i wish i had that i think i think that really is really good advice though because it is hard like COVID or not for like all shows to be online. Like, yeah. I don't know about you, but I really miss like seeing brushstrokes and like smelling the paint, you know? Yeah, and so much of art is not translated through the screen. Um, yeah. you know, it automatically flattens everything. It, it takes certain color distortions. Um, so I, I do really miss seeing work in person. Yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking, speaking of work in person, um, how important to you is the the surface and actual kind of application of the paint uh, within your work? Because there are moments where it gets real kind of um, thin and translucent and there's layering mm -hmm. of these colors and then there's other kind of more opaque, opaque moments. Um, mm -hmm. Could you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, I, I would much prefer if the, if the world, <clears throat> excuse me, saw my work in person. Because like there are these like I I do like scratch in things with like exacto mm -hmm. knives I I have really clean lines that I want you to see how clean they are like when I've taped something off you know I I have all of these little 
like little bugs, like little things that you just cannot see on like a like an iPhone screen. Um, I was reminded of how important this is when I saw Louis Fortino's show at Sycama Jenkins, mm. like because I saw the works um, on my phone ahead of time, and obviously I was like, of course they're amazing. Like I'm a huge fan of his, but when I saw the show in person, I realized that. I was missing these bugs. I was missing these mm. scratches that he had. I was missing these like little writings or or even like what I love looking at is like the sides of the canvas. Like obviously on Instagram, no one shows like the the paint covered sides of their canvas. Yeah. And I like am a huge kind of like art materials person. Like I really kind of obsess about that stuff. And I I love to see what other artists choices are because I think that says a lot about them. And, and, and that is also like an unexpected thing that I'm missing is like peering on the other side of like a, of a canvas bar. Um, so I was really kind of reminded of, of the, the trickery of, not the trickery, but the, the sadness of, of the screen when I, you know, am confronted with work or I'm like, oh my God, I've missed so much. And this is like so amazing when I already thought that it was amazing in the screen. Mm-hmm. yeah um so with 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 that advice even in there mm-hmm. uh, what would be some advice that you would like to that you've either received or advice mm-hmm. you would like to kind of put out to an up-and-coming uh generation of creatives that are kind of coming into the world yeah I think as someone who didn't move to New York right away um I'd like to go, to to make my way to New York but as someone who didn't do it right away, but I think really benefited from not doing that. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to make sure that you going back to like material conditions that you like set up the environment for yourself that is most conducive to making art. If that means that like you don't go to New York right away and you have like a larger studio in like, I don't know, Iowa or something. I, I think that's important to like, like fashion your world in a way that art is the thing that you need to worry most about which is obviously like a a really privileged thing to 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 advise but i think that if if you can you know narrow down your life to the things that you need to do in the day that the most time is is art um that is a benefit like i for example when i was in between undergrad and grad school, I worked at an art supply store. And that to me was really beneficial because, you know, I would work, um, I worked almost full time, but I, I had these hours where I would go to the studio, then I would go and work, and then I would get a 40% discount on art supplies, and then I would go to the studio again. So like the way that I was crafting my world was conducive to art making. Mm. Does that make sense? So that's yeah, that's completely. kind of like the advice that I would give is like scheme your world that like the studio is the priority. Um, and going to Instagram, like like I think if you do have like a studio in Iowa or like a studio in somewhere that's not like one of our big metropolitan hubs, <clears throat> that's when Instagram is a really important professional tool. And like, that's when I think it's really important to be diligent about posting or, or be diligent about like reaching out to people who do have connections. Um, 
because so much right now is is online where I don't think it matters if your if your studio is not somewhere that's you know easy to get to at least right now so that's what my advice would be nice brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> Um, and I, I think that's kind of the, the perfect place to kind of wrap things up. So if, okay. if people are looking for your work, where can they find it? Um, you can find my work at my Instagram, which is at Rebecca Ness Art. You can go to my website, which is RebeccaNessArt.com. Or you can email me at RebeccaNessArtist at gmail.com if you have questions. Sometimes I'm a little slow to respond, but I promise I will respond to you. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, Rebecca, I've enjoyed this thoroughly. Um, I love your work, huge fan. Um, and thank you for being on the show. Um, it was it was truly a pleasure. Thank you so uh, much, Jeremy. Um, I'm really happy that you invited me and this was really fun. All right, so everybody make sure to check out Rebecca's work and I will see you next week for our next episode. All right, see ya.